Today, May 12th, 2020, is a day we've been working toward in the year since we put up our first episode of this podcast series. Texas Congressman Louie Gohmert, along with eight other congressmen, sent a letter to President Donald Trump asking for the release of the men of Raven 2-3. You can see the letter on our website, thinkagain.me, and on the Justice for Warriors Facebook page. It details the same misconduct by the Justice Department that our research has uncovered, the same pattern of abuses that hit the headlines this week. Our remaining episodes will detail a show trial put on by prosecutors who felt free to break the law to win the convictions of Dustin Hurd, Evan Liberty, Nick Slatton, and Paul Slough. Congressman Gomert talked to me about why, in the middle of a pandemic, he's still taking time to push for criminal justice reform. This is Raven 2-3, Presumption of Guilt. I'm Gina Keating. Think again. So I'm um, speaking with Congressman Louis Gohmert from Texas. And today is a, a really important day uh, for the Justice for Warriors Caucus, as well as for the men of Raven 2-3 or Biden 4. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the Justice for Warriors Caucus and what its mission is. Can you tell me how it originated, who's in it, more or less, and what are the concerns of your members? Well, thank you, Jane, and thanks for caring. I mean, it's a big deal. Uh, uh, actually, until um, I was hosting uh, Sean Hannity's uh, radio show, he has he's. Uh, he's incredible and was so gracious to let me uh, uh, guest host a couple of times a year. And there was a story that appeared about a, a lieutenant named Clint Lawrence. And I read that story on the air and talked about that sounded like terrible injustice. And then that got uh, uh, Linda Sirocco, now Linda McC- I'm sorry, now <laughs> Lauren McLaughlin, it got her interested in that. And then she found out also about a sergeant named Derek Miller. Now, that's not too complicated, but it was two cases that sounded like a terrible injustice against people who had volunteered to defend our country. And so uh, I ended up meeting with Derek Miller's mother, and uh, I was even more compelled to do something to try to help him. And uh, so I was had helped. I did a letter. I was trying to push to get him a hearing. And when he got a hearing before the parole board, it was really important that we get his sentence reduced so that he would be eligible for parole. But he had been found guilty of basically a war crime for premeditated murder. And this is a guy, he was in Afghanistan, and it it seemed clear to me that we were not going to win a war where you allowed the enemy to come walking through your camp, which they had rules that allowed that to happen. They had villages around them that were controlled by the Taliban and there was a, and they could not shoot at anybody under 
these are under the rules of engagement at the time, even if they know for certain that they were Taliban, that they were shooting at them the day before, they had to wait for them to shoot at them first, and the Taliban had figured that out. So they didn't have any problem going right through their camp or driving right beside their camp, uh, even with a, a, a truckload of uh, well, they had RPGs or AK-47, and he saw this guy the day before with weapons when they were going with another group that was going to fight against the Americans. And the next day, he's in the middle of their camp, and he recognized him. He grabbed him and grabbed a, an interpreter, and another sergeant demanded to know what he was doing. And at first, he said uh, he was there to fix uh, an electric problem. He said, you got no tools. That's a lie. You tell me what you're doing. He said, well, I'm here to fix plumbing. He said, you got no tools for that either. And so he realized this is this is a life-threatening situation to have a Taliban terrorist right in the middle of their camp. And they usually, if somebody they suspected of being a terrorist and was walking through their camp, uh, they were usually pacing off how far to certain things, which preceded a mortar attack that would kill Americans. So he grabs a guy and pulls his pistol, and he demanded to know the truth. The guy grabs his gun and starts trying to pull it away from him, and in the scuffle, the guy got shot. The uh, interpreter and the sergeant gave the same. They separated them immediately, and they... Uh, they gave the same story, just what I've told you. But then the sergeant was threatened with pre, uh, as being a principal accomplice with uh, uh, for first-degree murder unless he agreed that the guy didn't put, try to grab the pistol. And so he ultimately changed his story. The interpreter wasn't changing his story until... He was told, look, we know you've tried to uh, get visas to, for yourself, your family to come to the U.S. If you'll change your story and say that the Taliban guy never grabbed for his pistol, then we'll get you visas for your family. They'll probably be, you'll all be able to stay permanently in all likelihood, which happened. And that is just incredible. Now, they did have a mortar attack within 30 minutes, and uh, according to his first sergeant that testified at his parole hearing, that if uh, because of Sergeant Miller, uh, there were lives saved because he spots this guy, grabs him, uh, they got put on high alert and people were ready. They knew a mortar attack was probably coming because of the Taliban guy. Uh, even though he hadn't been able to get back and give them uh, measurements of how far the different uh, things were in their camp. So anyway, I, I know the uh, Congressional Black Caucus sent a letter on his behalf, and that wasn't, I, I wanted to do more than that. And having been in the Army active duty for four years, uh, I knew the justice system in the Army, and I wanted to be there to testify for him. So Derek wasn't even allowed to be at his own parole hearing. I couldn't believe the Army would have a system like that. 
but uh, his mom and I testified, and, and there were a couple others that did, and we got his sentence reduced, and then that made him eligible for parole. Then after that, uh, he had a separate parole hearing, and I showed up and testified at that as well, and, along with a number of other members of Congress who were very interested. Well, it made the difference, and he got paroled uh, a year ago, June, uh, or May, I guess. He got paroled May. So we were thrilled, and, and that was the impetus. You know what? We've got a lot of our valiant warriors that are being screwed over by the, ju by, by the military justice system, and in these cases, it was often driven by a ridiculous rule of engagement. In the case during the Obama years, what I was told, even though the military would not give me the official rule of engagement, what they told our soldiers and our Marines, our people were, you cannot fire at somebody unless, number one, you're fired upon, and number two, you can be absolutely certain that no civilians are hit. And Duncan Hunter had been helping a Navy SEAL named Gallagher, and he had a desire to do something similar. Unfortunately, Duncan's had some problems of his own in California, but he uh, he was a Marine, is a Marine. And so uh, we ended up uh, with initial members of Ralph Norman, Bill Flores, Daniel Webster, uh, Paul Gosar, Brian Babin, Steve King, Ted Yoho, Scott Perry. Scott Perry uh, made general before he retired from the military. So all of these guys had a great concern about what was happening. So we formed the Congressional Justice for Warriors Caucus to try to help people like Derek and about like Clint Lawrence. And I'm thrilled that uh, and we were pushing the president to pardon him and that got that uh, the president thank god it is a commander-in-chief that is not as concerned about uh, pleasing others politically around the world as he is about protecting those that are protecting us so he pardoned the guy and i was very disappointed with secretary of defense esper he got all his nose all out of joint, and I'm sure there were some other people that were purists. They were saying, you're killing morale in the military. Uh, well, maybe for the general or admiral that sends somebody to trial unfairly and unjustly, maybe it hurts their morale. But for the rank-and-file troops I talked to, they're saying, thank God we got a president that really is interested in protecting those of us who are laying down our lives for our country. So that's, that's wow, that's a long answer. I'm sorry. No, no, it's that's absolutely what I wanted to know. With everything that's happened in the last couple of days with General Flynn um, and all of the hoopla around that, um, I just have to ask, you know, this case, the Raven 2-3 Biden 4 case is very different from the cases that you've championed so far in that these are yep. civilian um, contractors. So why did you decide to weigh in on their side when clearly it means taking on the political baggage, not just of uh, General Flynn, but also Eric Prince, Blackwater and the failures of the Iraq war? Well, we were just concerned about the people that were involved and uh, originally we were not uh, going to 
the, the caucus was not going to assist civilian contractors. But then when we find out these are warriors themselves, they all served in the military, and then they hired on as civilians. And, and I was shocked first time. Uh, well, and then the times I've been to Iraq, and especially uh, when Dana Rohrbacher and I went up to northern Iraq, uh, we were protected by some um, independent contractors. Uh, they were Blackwater, and these were the most dedicated guys. They were awesome, but they had all been in the military. And uh, so that's that's what uh, the Raven 23 or the Biden 4, they were often referred to as that. But these are people that had, had uh, volunteered to serve our country and our military and then continued that service as civilians be, being put in harm's way. And sometimes their jobs are ever been as dangerous or more so than our military. And that's what happened to the Biden four. Um, it, it, and what got us involved is when we had a briefing and found out these were warriors and they were just uh, thrown to the dogs by uh, the Obama administration, especially by Joe Biden. Uh, they had a case stacked against them. Uh, they, the uh, military turned over investigation to an Iraqi official that it appears was helping uh, the insurgents, our enemies, uh, enemies of Iraq. And our own military didn't even do any investigation, kind of like Derek Miller. They didn't, uh, in Derek's case, all they had to do was have fingerprints checked on the his pistol, they took it immediately after the, the shooting, his superior, and uh, they never had it checked for fingerprints of the deceased. That would have ended it right there. But instead, they got rid of the pistol so that Derek would not have a defense. In the case of the, the Biden four, uh, there was a car bomb that went off. And so they called these guys to run to the danger uh, because we had a U.S. diplomat right in the area. And they were called in to try to protect him and get him out of the area. So they immediately went to an intersection and put up a roadblock till the diplomat could get by. And there was a vehicle that came charging and refused to stop. They fired some rounds uh, over the vehicle. The vehicle wouldn't stop, stop and appeared clearly to be ramming full speed ahead. And uh, they started also taking small arms fire from around them. And this was a life or death situation. And this appeared to be a car bomb coming at them, even though it turns out uh, supposedly it didn't have a bomb on it. We can't be that sure because our military turned over the investigation to the Iraqi leader who hated Americans. And uh, there, was, there were reports that they picked up bags and bags of expended rounds. And yet when uh, those four were brought to trial, the, the many different trials that they were brought to, 
they said, oh, no, there was no evidence that any other rounds were expended other than theirs, yet they had pictures of their vehicle with, with gunshots in it. So anyway, uh, this sounded too similar about the, uh, uh, like the cases of our military. These guys were prior military, so the caucus voted, let's get in and try to help these guys. That's wonderful. Okay, so um, I talked to Derek, and he said that you have some very specific uh, legislative goals for Justice for Warriors. Can you um, tell us what those are, um, the legislation that you're sponsoring, and also um, if there are any other cases that uh, sort of exemplify what you're trying to change? Well, sure. And, and just so you understand my background, yeah, I had an Army scholarship at Texas A&M. I knew I was going to owe the Army four years after I graduated. Uh, but then uh, Vietnam ended, and I was urged to go get further education so that the Army could develop their plan for a voluntary military instead of draft. And I said, well, I'd always thought about going to law school afterwards. Uh, after the Army, if we weren't at war, they said, go now. So I ended up going, getting a law degree. I had requested infantry. Uh, I love the infantry, Eagle Scout. Um, I was pretty good at all the stuff the infantry embraced. And so I didn't know whether I'd for sure be brought on infantry or JAG. They brought me on JAG and assigned me to the home of the infantry, which was Fort Benning, Georgia, still is. And that's where I served for four years, and I saw some injustices. And in fact, there had been some before, but they had been dealt with so that the same guy that refers a guy to court-martial would not be the one that raided the defense counsel so that if the guy was acquitted or got too light a sentence in the, in the head of the convening authority, uh, he wouldn't lose his career. But what, uh, what it, it, you also have to understand, the Constitution gives Congress the authority to create a disciplinary system for our military. And that's where the Uniform Code of Military Justice came from. But the, it was shortcutting the process of civilian justice so that it had a, a delicate balance of making sure justice was done in the UCMJ, but also keeping in mind these would likely be in a theater situations, combat theaters, where you would need to shorten the process some so that uh, it would not interfere with fighting and mission readiness. Well, what we've seen now, like with Derek, with Miller, with Clint Lawrence, with First Sergeant John Hatley and others, uh, and it happened to Gallagher too, these allegations arise in a combat theater. They bring them back to the United States where they don't have access to the witnesses. Then they tell them, no, we can't bring those witnesses back. And any of this is culpatory evidence that would absolutely prove you're innocent. We don't have that anymore. Well, you can't do that. And so we're looking at ways to make the UCMJ more fair for our valiant warriors. And one of the things that I feel like actually is unfair and needs to be changed, the same 
convening authority, usually a general or an admiral, that signs the order ordering that this person be court-martialed. They don't sign that order and want him convicted. Well, that's who picks the jurors, handpicks the jurors. And it's not like a civilian jury where you may, like when I was a felony judge here in Texas, we might have, uh, you know, a hundred uh, potential jurors come in that we would pick from to get the most fair 12. Uh, in the military, the commanding general or admiral sends it to court-martial, handpicks the jurors. They can be anywhere from 6 to 15 sometimes. And every juror knows they were handpicked because the general or the admiral expects a conviction. Well, that's not exactly fair. But another thing that we've seen, too, is in the case of some of these guys, they bring them back and they take them to trial before a jury of guys, of men and women, that have not even been in combat. Uh, sometimes they have, but many times they haven't. They don't understand what it is to have bullets flying at you. Uh, you know, Churchill pointed out that was about the most exhilarating thing a person could experience was being fired on and the bullet missing. Uh, they, you know, you, you need to have a jury of peers. So that's one of the things that I hope that we can work on. But another thing that really inspired me, Gina, uh, is reading the brief, reading a brief in one of these parole cases and seeing that it said that through World War One, World War Two, Korea and Vietnam, there were seven Americans convicted of war crimes. But just in Iraq and Afghanistan, we've had over 200. That tells you America wasn't being put first. We were putting our enemies first, not uh, our own volunteers. So uh, there are definitely a lot of changes that need to be made. Yes, it sounds like it. One of the other things that really important, when somebody's been investigated, uh, even if they're not if they're found not guilty or they're pardoned because of injustice or their conviction overturned, the Criminal Investigation Division title system, CID title system, it keeps that information of the arrest and all of that in the system so that if you try to go get a job or you want to get into law enforcement or want to get a weapon, you're denied because that information is still in the system. That's another grave injustice that we got to fix. But there's just a lot of issues. But that's that's another one, how they can hurt somebody that was totally not guilty in the first place. Okay, one last question, if you wouldn't mind. Um, you've described You've described a system that is, sounds like it's broken. Um, and there are, um, as Derek and I have talked about, um, a lot of political motivations in some of these cases, including this case of Raven 2-3, the Biden 4. Can you talk about how the military criminal justice system has come to this pass with prosecutors acting more like gang members and the military leadership just turning a blind eye to some of these misdeeds and kind of encouraging this behavior? What, what happened? Well, my interpretation, my opinion, but it seems 
that uh, in the years following Vietnam and we get up to the present, and especially under the Obama-Biden administration, uh, the military became extremely political. And I don't know if you're aware, but Obama had a number of purges where he would eliminate any leaders of the military that uh, and prevent them from being promoted. Uh, but they would literally purge people that did not agree with the political philosophy of the president. For example, if you felt like uh, it, we should not spend defense money on uh, sex change operations, you were going to be out. And it didn't matter that you thought it was fine if somebody wanted to have a sex change operation. You just felt like you shouldn't use money that could go for bulletproof vests or something for uh, you didn't think that should go for sex change. You're going to get purged at the highest levels. And so it became so political. And in the case of the Biden four, there were so many outrageous, unjust things that happened that uh, the first federal judge that took this up just threw it all out, chastised people involved. But then Biden goes over and he does a press conference with the president of Iraq basically saying, we're going to get these guys. Uh, and so that's what they did. They set out, they made a, had a press conference, said they were going to get these guys, and son of a gun, they did. It became way too political. And that's where when politics gets too involved in justice, then there is no justice. That is a great place to end this. Well, thank you very much for uh, for coming to talk to us today. And um, we're looking forward to see um, what's going to happen with this uh, request for pardon. Have you talked to the president about this at all? I'm yes. And uh, we're hoping that uh, we can get these guys pardoned. Uh, you know, we will see what happens, but um, we're going to keep pushing. And, and actually, Gina, like I say, I'm so thrilled that you would uh, allow this opportunity to talk about this for people that just wanted to serve our country. Uh, and by the way, Derek Miller, is he's working for the, the caucus now. He's unbelievable. And even though I'm a Christian, I don't know if I could be as upbeat and positive and, and much of an encourager as Derek is. I mean, he is just such a blessing. His attitude, he just wants to help eliminate injustice in the military. So he's working for us. He's working for the caucus. And Lauren, uh, McLaughlin now is also helping with our caucus. So I hope you'll have me back so we can talk some more about some of the things that are going on, Gina. And again, thank you, thank you so much for caring and letting us get this message out. Well, thank you very much. This is probably one of the most important stories I've ever done. So we'll talk to you again well, soon. Look forward to it. Thanks so much, Gina.